you're up there tinkering around next to the Almighty. Today I'm very pleased and fortunate to be able to interview a saxophonist whom I've had the pleasure of listening to prior to this podcast, and he is the real deal. There's no doubt about it. If I could be, I would say, a tenth as good as he is, I'd be more than pleased. I will have reached my goals, and I have a feeling, he doesn't know it yet, that I'm going to be talking a lot to him about learning how to get a little bit better. Because he puts more into his sax playing than just playing. He puts his feelings. In Japanese, we say kokoro. His soul is in what he plays. Because when I was listening... Anyway, without any further ado, because I could go on and on and on, I want to introduce to you Jim Butler. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Oh, first of all, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having you on. This is your place, as a matter of fact. I'm saying being here as if it's... Yeah. This is your studio. Here, Thank here, you for inviting me to your studio. Here, here on the interwebs, <laughs> which currently belong to you in this case. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, listen, let's start off with where were you born? Born in San Diego. Okay. Um, and um, uh, mom, mom was uh, um, a daughter of a, a Navy captain. That's right. Served in the Pacific and um, grew up in San Diego. Um, moved away to um, Austin, Texas when I was 22. Um, to pursue college there, and that's where I found myself learning how to become a professional saxophone player on 6th Street. The live situation on Austin, Texas, 6th Street, had the live bands all the way down the street. Well, how you old know, were you? How old were you when this happened? 22 years old, and we're talking, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan was there at the same time, and all those guys, <laughs> Eric Johnson. So tell me, you have siblings? Do you have siblings? I have um, uh, a um, sister. She's one year younger than me, okay. and I have a brother 10 years younger than me. All the same <coughs> parents, right. and um, we all grew up together. And mom and dad are still together. Mom and dad are still together. Married in 1964, still together today. Are they still living in California? Still living in San Diego. In San Diego, the same house that you grew up in? Well, yes. Actually, yes. The same house that I grew up in, yes. That must be then, really nostalgic for you when you go back. Every time you go back, you spent your whole, you spent all of your adult life in the military so far. Uh, well, um, what happened was, is uh, <clears throat> I went to college uh, at 18, mm -hmm. and at, that was at San Diego State University and majored in music, got my degree there. Then I went to Austin, Texas, uh, to the University of Texas, and got my master's and my doctorate in music. When you were in elementary school, what kind of kid were you? I just want to know, were uh, you more academic or were you more sports-minded? So at first, as an elementary kid, I'm just a kid. I'm just like not outstanding it very much, you know, just kind of a little bit fuzzy headed. Um, mom would help me with reading and math and I'd kind of get to the B level, you know. And but what about dad? Was he a part of your... Dad life? was working all the time, all teaching, the time. Uh, ironically. Even when you were in elementary school? Oh yeah, he was working school. all the time. Okay. So, your mother stayed home during that time? Yes. Okay. And um, so mom helped me and then, you know, when I was about 11... Um, Dad took me to the tennis courts and said, Jamie, is that something you might like to do? And I said, mm, maybe. And I started becoming really intensely serious about becoming a professional tennis player. 
But prior to that, what other sports had you played? Had you played basketball? No you basketball. Played baseball? No organized sports. No really. organized sports at all. I started taking up soccer with the with the AYSO with the organized when I was in uh, junior high school. Okay. All right. And then in uh, high school, just did tennis, still thinking maybe one day I'm going to be a professional tennis player. But how tall were you? Um, five, nine and a half. You found, you, you'd already gotten your whole height by then. By, by about the third year of high school. Third year in high school. You know, and I was um, better than average, you know. I was offered a scholarship to a small college on tennis. and uh, But by the time I was grown up, by the time I was 16 or 17, you know, I'm looking at guys I'm having trouble beating who'd only been playing a year. And they're specimens though. Six feet two, right, right. strong. So it turns out if you wanna to be tops in sports, God has to endow you with certain baseline genetics, except for one or two of aberrations, you know, outliers. Right. They can be small, you know. That's right, there's um, a few, there's only a few. Uh, uh, what's that basketball player who's five six in the NBA for a I while? I forget. I know what you mean. Right, right. But, but yeah, aside from that, shot. outside of that, you're not. Gonna you got to be big. You got to be strong. Right. <clears throat> I was just average. Um, mm -hmm. um, and um, but uh, along that time, starting at the age of thirteen, I took up the saxophone. And now what's, what made you do that? Well, my dad again said, uh, and he was always a jazz lover. Benny Did, Goodman. Had he played any instruments? Uh, my father, no. My mom, classical piano. Okay. Um, but um, and you took no piano lessons prior. <clears throat> no piano lessons prior. Okay. But um, you know, my dad was a jazz lover, and so I, I grew up hearing Benny Goodman and Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong and uh, Miles Davis. You know, and um, and so he asked me about uh, what instrument I wanted to play. Went to the music store. And I could choose my instrument, right? Is that 13? Yes. I, I, Dad takes me to the music store. I can choose my instrument. And, you know, I th I'd thought about clarinet, you know, with Benny Goodman. Mm -hmm. But I took one look at that golden saxophone sitting there on the counter. And I was like, ah. <laughs> alto? Alto sax. So the alto sax chose me at that point. Is that still your favorite of the saxophone? Sax? That's my voice. That's your voice. If you look out there in my storage cabinet, yeah. I have a tenor sax, I have a soprano oh, no, sax, I, um, yes. I have a flute, I have a clarinet, I have right. a drum set, I have a, I, I play p keyboards, right. um, I have a guitar I play too. Um, but the thing that chose me was the alto saxophone. And is I, this the first one that you got? No, although it is older than me, uh, the first one that I got was a student model. Is this a Selma? Now this is a Selma Mark VI. That's the Mark VI? This one is from 1959. You know how much these cost? They're, they're very expensive, but this one has a story. Most of them do. Give me one. So this one, <clears> 10 <throat> years ago, my friend came back from Paris, and I was hanging out from for a while, and he says, Jim, by the way, I have, a, I have an old broken down sax that they gave to me in Paris, in its instrument store, they were gonna throw it away. And he gave me a paper bag. And I shook it, and there was all these parts for a saxophone in a paper bag. It sat in my closet for a couple of years. I didn't know what it but was. But you were already playing sax by this time. Oh, for many, many years as a oh, professional. You... Many, well, many how... years. Okay, so... How... <laughs> Wait, now, let's build me up to that again. Now, you'd been playing for what? Maybe 20 years? 20 or 30 years already. And, and 10 you're... years ago. No, 10 years ago, you were where? I was uh, actually at the time I was in San Francisco okay. and a friend was coming back from Paris mm -hmm. and an instrument store had given him a broken down bunch of junk in a paper bag. Mm -hmm. 
and um, I shook it and there was a bunch of saxophone parts in there and um, I already wanted a Mark VI alto saxophone but it was out of my price range right so um, it sat in my closet for a couple years moved here to Japan took my paper bag to Ishimori's one day in uh, Shinokubo right um, and poured it out on the counter and just asked them what they thought. And the technician just started laughing because he looked, took one look at it and realized all of the pieces were there for a Mark VI. It was, everything was there. So about $800 later, I, I give you all the new pads and everything, right? picked it up Springs, from, right? from Ishimori's complete. Everything was complete on this priceless, really irreplaceable is. horn. 1959 Mark VI, made only for Europe. The reason why you know it's Europe is because there's no scroll work on it. There's none, no. They, 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 the, the scroll work was made for the United States uh, summer Mark VI right. at that time. Right. In 1959, also another rarity is the, um, the high F sharp key. You don't see those on, on the old, oldest horns. Right. So, anyway, this is my little pride and joy. It's beautiful. As... Um, as uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan would say, it's my pride and joy. Okay, so your father takes you into the store, the sax picks you, and what happens? 13 years old. 13 years old, then what happens? I take it home, and I start playing, and I'm playing it right away. There's some kind of divine power going on. I am focused on my little You know how part. to wet the, the reed and everything already? Or well, I on? got that basics from the music store. Okay. So now I'm like down there, I got my little part, and I'm practicing, and every time I make a mistake, I hit the horn, on, on the instrument case, because I don't know any better. I just, uh, you know, right? Because I'm a sports guy even then. Right. And uh. so then after a minute or two, I noticed there's all these little dings in the horn. And I, oh, so I realized the, the saxophone is a, is a fragile and precious thing. And it's made out of bendable brass that you can actually bend with your hands. That's right. So, um, but I was focused on that. And that was my true calling. Even then, I, I, I was just this kid, you know, just a normal kid, but when music really grabbed a hold of my heart. And um, only after about a year in the high school band, you know, uh, two years in the high school band, I found myself in a situation after school where I'm jamming Dixieland with some other kids. Just three or four other kids were just jamming. And I'd never played jazz before. And I am just jamming. I am doing it. I don't know where it's coming from. I, the, the other kids are looking at me like, what? What is going on here? You're jamming. <laughs> and that's when I found out that God gave me um, these, these, um, these sort of abilities that, um, that I can hone and I can work on and better myself on. But he gave me this big, um, this big present that I was heretofore not aware of. Hmm. Crazy stuff. That is beautiful. So your father had to be elated. Pardon me? Your father was so happy, I'm sure, after he found out that you really took to this. You know, my father is interesting. He has a love-hate relationship with jazz um, because um, he uh, came up with jazz in San Francisco in the 60s. In, and at that time, all these great players were coming through. Miles Davis, the, uh, the Adderley brothers, Cannonball Adderley, and he went and saw all their shows. 
And uh, so as a college student, he had his ups and downs emotionally with girlfriends and everything. It's all hooked into that. You're right. I, I understand. I got you. I got so, you. So, so sad moments, listening to jazz. So, Happy moments, listening to jazz. So yeah. like, I think like a lot of fathers too, you know, he loved jazz, but then he's like, for his own son, he was like, but, you know, son, what about, you know, have you considered, you know, the, the medical field? You know what I mean, you know, I mean, we, we all want the best for our, we all want the best for our kids. Right, right, right. That's right. Something that you have a better chance of making a living, you know, living with and, and taking care of your family. Couldn't articulate that to him at the right, time. Right. It took me many years to, to understand that the, the music was the, was the thing that chose me. And I kind of don't didn't have a choice. When do you think you started to really realize that? Because um, you're telling me this after many years of doing it, and I'm sure it didn't hit you for a while that you yeah. realized you were meant to do this. It didn't so how happen long would you say? a long time. I'd I'd been playing music seriously all through my twenties in college, and then I joined the Air Force Band when I was thirty. And sometime in my thirties, I realized mm, this is it for me. This is my calling. This is even though I had been doing it the whole time. There was a lot of, I was not um, entirely sold that this was for me. You know, you'd be doing it until? Lots of doubts, self-doubts, doubts about the music business. But I got to somewhere in my 30s and I'm like, you know what? This is my path. I need to stay with this and focus on it. And So it doesn't just, matter what you're doing, you're going to have this in your life. It's every day now. Every day. Right. Every day, even on Sundays. That's beautiful. So you t you're talking about your religious background, too. So did your parents raise you religiously? Did not. Okay. Um, I would say that my, both my mom and dad are very spiritual. Okay. Um, but they came at it through the angle of books, English literature, philosophy, um, and teaching. But um, as children of the 60s, born in the 40s, came of age in the 60s, mm -hmm. they rejected traditional church. And so I was... In growing up, we were not uh, taken to church growing up. But they did instill, though, my dad was an altar boy Catholic and my mom was a Lutheran. And, you know, they still have that even if they don't have it. You know, you still get it from them. You, you get the values. You get the mores. You get the do's and the don'ts. That's right. You, That's get, right. you get everything. And um, so... So, they, so they, they made sure that all of their children understood the difference between good and bad, oh, yeah. between giving and taking, yeah. between, yeah, and believing there is something. So they were not agnostic. Correct. Okay. They were not agnostic. They believed. They yeah. believed there's something. When I'm playing, uh, it's beyond the words. So uh, although um, the word is God, but um, from my perspective in trying to get closer to the infin infinite in my music, it, it's not about the it, it's it's beyond the uh, the rational thinking and it's beyond the uh, the words in 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 the quest to try to become closer like Icarus actually get closer to the Almighty um, and not melt and fall down not. <laughs> and not melt and fall down and that actually truthfully is what's so dangerous about the business I'm in of music you can get out there like for example Charlie Parker or a uh, um, um, Art Pepper. There's so many examples. They fly, flew so close to the Almighty, to the to the Sun, to the um, that um, that I believe it becomes a, a very dangerous thing too. It be, spiritually, it's so powerful and intense that unless you have 
mechanisms to cope with that level of spirituality. If you have a, a, a belief system, if you have um, friends and support systems around you, if you don't have any of that and you're just so close to that, um, it can be a very dangerous thing as well as sublime and beautiful. It's interesting. So interesting, Jim. Yeah. Now you're really starting to put into perspective that I believe you've already helped me in being able to play my sax better. I have to start looking at it differently. I mean, so many of my friends, I'm in my 50s now, almost done with that. But um, not only historic examples like Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and um, um, Art Pepper and um, so many examples of, of musicians that have passed long before their time, uh, I attribute to the, um, the dangerousness of the sublimity of music. I attribute that and what the, the behavior systems that came out of, you know, being that close to the Almighty and how could they handle it. Um, I have also had um, personal friends and connections in, the, um, in my music business also passed by the wayside by suicide and things like that. But what about drug use? And um, maybe drug use, that although well. I, I'm, I'm kind of out of that side. So right. with... Uh, you with, mean you, are you out of that side? What do you mean out of that what, side? What, with my musician friends, that, that issue never comes up with me. Okay, right. Because well, for, you couldn't. First of all, you're in the service. Yeah, but even after, for some reason, and I'm in Japan and it's so strict here, and it's never been in my life, so that the issue never comes up with fellow musicians. But I see my fellow musicians passing by the wayside in their 40s, in their 50s. My, one, of, one of my good alto buddies, um, uh, just Andrew Spate, who was with the Nat Adderley Quartet and the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra for a while, um, drove his SUV on the railroad tracks last seven, eight months ago on the railroad tracks um, in San Francisco and just sat there and waited for the train. He was 58 years old. At the alcohol at all? At alcohol. The he was at the top of his powers as okay. a jazz musician, kind of a little bit world famous, Andrew Spate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't really, I never, I never saw a thing about alcohol or drugs. Okay. But um, I attribute a lot of these kinds of things to the dangerousness of being so close to these powerful spiritual energies. Through your music. Through the music, and you're you're up there tinkering around next to the Almighty. So unless you have a support system, and a, and a, and a, and, a, a and, and a family and a support system and a and a, and a or a belief system or something that can ground you, that these guys, they don't know how to come down from there, in any kind of uh, gradual, um, graceful way, and it, it's very difficult. A lot of uh, Guys historically use drugs to kind of stay up there or, or ease themselves down. Um, but um, it's dangerous, I, in, in my personal opinion. It's That's dangerous being up there. first time I've ever heard it expressed that way. That's beautiful. If you don't have a religious or belief system and or a, um, a, uh, a support system and you start being up there so close to that profoundness, then um, you're in a very dangerous area. You need you need those support structures, I think, mm. to, to kind of come on down off of that some, and be a human being again with your feet on the ground. Now, now when did you, now, okay, when did you come to that 
mindset. I you think, start thinking like that? I think it was only as I saw my friends passing it in the last couple of years. Okay. The 50s, the age of 50s is a dangerous period where you start seeing people start passing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it started me thinking, and I had been thinking about the whole drugs and alcohol issues related to jazz musicians for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. How does that relate? How does that fit together, you know? I always thought that's what helped to get them to be as good as they were, but now I'm looking at it different. It's incorrect. Yeah, now, you're right. Now I'm looking you're at right. it differently. You're right. Uh, and even like oh. a, if you think about writers... Because most of them that really aren't great talk about drug use or something, right. some sort of another. But that was... but Like a Charlie Parker. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the phrase going in the woodshed. Yes. To, to practice. Yes. Charlie Parker went into the woodshed to practice stone cold sober eight hours a day to get where he was. And when he was playing those, uh, I believe it was uh, dial recordings or verve recordings for, with uh, Charlie Parker with strings, he was stone cold sober practicing every day and working hard. So... Um, Another story, uh, William Faulkner, uh, 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 Ernest Hemingway, both, both of them were famous alcoholics um, and, um, or infamous. Uh, Jack London, another one, a Call of the Wild, uh, famous uh, alcoholic. But when they wrote, when they were doing their work, they were stone cold sober. It was only, it was only after creating this incredibleness what do they do to come back down to the, with their feet on the ground again? It's a very dangerous time when you're that close to the Almighty. It's just my, it's just my opinion. Yeah, I like that. But it's, it's been many, you know, 20 or 30 years thinking about with the relationship between high mortality rate of artists and writers, alcohol and drugs. What's the connection? And just, just thinking along those terms, you know. One thing I've noticed is a lot of these uh, jazz musicians came from broken homes or homes where daddy was out of the picture fairly quickly, maybe mommy too, and um, so they didn't have any structure at all to help them keep their feet on the ground as they soared towards the sun. So, Okay, well you don't have that excuse. No. Okay. I don't. And you're good. <laughs> you are really, really good. But, wait, but, wait, wait, wait. but so uh, the answer is, is I, okay. I, I'm, I'm working up there close to the sun, trying to be not where those guys are because they're towering talents. But I'm, I'm working in that. I'm working there every day. But, um, <clears throat> but um, I do have the advantage of a stable uh, family upbringing, and um, and so um, I've got my feet on the ground every day too. Right. Do you think that limits your creativity a little bit? Um, I don't know. I don't know the correlation. Okay. I don't know. But I do know that these geniuses are kind of um, broken inside. So many of them. I don't know if that relates to the level of their genius. But mm. I hope not because I, I, I'm pretty grounded. But I'm working it every day. So, But want, I'm not at their level it. either. Yeah, right, right, right. You'd like to touch it. If you get the opportunity. I, I want to go there where they are. Right. I want to go where Charlie Parker was and John Coltrane was. My heroes, Kenny Garrett, where he goes, and Miles Davis. I want to go there, but I'm on the outside of that door, just kind of peeking into where the, those, those great men lived. Okay, where do we, what do we find you doing nowadays, Jim, now that you've been out of the service, yeah. you're living in Japan, what's your day like? And do you go to set, do you still do sets? Are you still playing? Do you go to hotels? Do you have any 
place that you go constantly where we could find you and, and listen to you? Well, um, um, when I first got to Tokyo nine years ago, I was uh, pretty busy uh, playing my own concerts, setting up my own concerts, and then getting lots of uh, phone calls to come and play with uh, at hotels and things like that and, and for other people. But um, um, the older I've gotten, the more my um, musical career has kind of focused in on exactly what I am doing. So I'm only putting on about maybe 10 concerts a year now. Um, I have three important ones coming up this year, 2023. Um, on October 8th is uh, our new CD release event happening at Satin Doll in Roppongi. October okay. 8th. Which CD? Do you have the CD anywhere? I do. I have let's, it. Let's promote it. Let's push it. So this this is the big event coming. Okay. And this is October 8th. October 8th. I'm going to get on this camera right this here. This is at uh, the, the, the Club Satin Doll okay. in Roppongi. Okay. I'll Rapungi. put that information on your description. And then this is the new CD that's coming out along with you. So we, we kind oh, of coordinated the sure colors. Did. You sure did. <laughs> that's beautiful. So we coordinated everything. And this is your group? This is my group, and it's composed of uh, Gene Jackson, who was six years with Herbie Hancock, right. and uh, Wayne Shorter. Okay. And, and so it's a host of talented um, players from New York. And, uh, and then oh, they're one, not living here? Um, well, the piano player is going to uh, fly in from New York mm -hmm. for the shows. Um, Chrissy's from Seattle, but she's living here now. And so is Amy. She's living here now, but she's from Los Angeles. Right. And um, Kengo Nakamura... Is um, has a house in Manhattan and a house in Tokyo, okay. and he has a Japanese family. He was voted uh, the best bass player in Japan by the uh, Swing Journal Readers Poll three years running. So these guys are um, off the chain; they're a little bit out of control. But uh, we're going to do our show on October eighth at Satin Doll. It looks reasonable too. It's only two thousand for students and four thousand for the charge. That's beautiful. I went down there recently to to give them my uh, flyers. And that comes with food and two drinks. Well, you got to pay that extra. Okay, that's extra. Okay. But my jaw dropped to the floor when I saw what some of the acts are charging down there right now. Yes. Uh, uh, You're trying to make up for the three years of COVID. Nine thousand yen. I know. For three people for a trio. Uh, Ichiman Yen right. for a couple a six, of people. You got a six group band. We got That's six cool. people because what we're trying to do is attract everybody we can, and uh, it's starting to fill up down there. So you gotta you gotta make your reservations pretty soon. But okay. uh, we want to attract everybody down there that we can so that they can look at the new CD, which right. is was going to become available for the first time. Okay. So it's actually not released yet. It's it's right. going to be available. So for it's the first a Sunday. Time. That's a Sunday that you start. Yeah. Because that Monday mean? happens to be a Japanese holiday. Okay. Sports day, right? So that Sunday becomes a weekend day, right? Right, 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 right. October eighth. I am looking forward to that. I have a question so, for you. Sure. What's in my future is the red coat. Sixty years old birthday. That's right. It's coming. That's right. The next jacket, year. Right. Did you do the red coat? I did. I did the red jacket. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to do a concert. A birthday okay, concert beautiful, beautiful. and and do the red coat thing. Okay, red jacket. All right, all right. that'd be nice. There's a friend. Do you know Philip Wu? I do. He's been on my podcast as well, uh, and he puts together events always on his <clears> birthday. <throat> he has a one that he does on his birthday regularly. But he's played with some big ones too, like yourself. Yeah. Okay. So get into this. So we know you're going to have on this concert. What other things do you do? Do you then, have any place where you play regularly? Then there's a. Uh, let's see if I have this. There's no regular place, but I think basically I'm always playing. 
once a year or so at the B-flat club in Akasaka, once or twice a year at Kichijoji sometime, once or twice a year at um, Naru um, Ochanomizu, and um, uh, let's see what else comes to mind. Um, Satin Doll, maybe about once a year, that one's in Rapungi. Um, and I, I used to play at Body and Soul, right. which used to be in Aoyama, uh, then they moved to Shibuya. So here's another yes. one. Okay. This one. This one is the in Phoenix? A Kichijoji is sometime. Okay. That's a new group that I, I've, I formed along with Osaka-san. So four of you? Okay. Osaka-san on the bass, mm -hmm. and we're playing at Kichijoji sometime on um, November, I, I think it says November 11th. Mm -hmm. And that's really exciting because we're getting into fusion electric sounds. And um, the is, this new, is this new for you? Yes. Uh, okay. I mean, I've been playing modern music modern jazz i've been playing rock and roll my whole time right. but uh this is the first time it's it's our concept that we've started as a four four piece unit and the bass player is off the chain he comes from the united kingdom last year and he is into really spacey electric bass playing with pedals and effects and sounds and weirdness and so it's, what do you do with your sax to change it i i just i just play like for example we'll play uh chick korea's um light as a Fe feather return to forever uh, tunes like 500 Miles High. I'm just playing my jazz. Okay. But behind me, the bass player's is going nuts. Okay. And Osaka on the drums uh, who, um, is going crazy. And uh, it's a it's an incredible vibe. So it's totally different. So so my October 8th is a little bit more of a traditional jazz, kind of like 1960s um, Miles Davis bands kind right. of sound. Right. But it's a lot of my original stuff. Okay. And then this- Also, your original songs are going to be played. Oh, yes. How many of them are going to be played? Well, How many songs total? We're going to play um, on this CD here. We're going to play all the songs on my CD on mm -hmm. October 8th. Green, Yellow, and Stars, The Edge of Darkness, Never Say Goodbye, The Hurricane, The Liar. Um, um, and um, and, and th th so those are my originals that we will play that night. Okay. And, um, <clears throat> and then... Um, Standards that night will be Blue and Green by Miles Davis, Stella by Starlight, and, um, and then a, a, a Pops cover we're going to jazz up, Killing Me Softly with his song. Okay. And then a jazz number that's a little bit not so famous called Guess Who I Saw Today, about an event that happened in a woman's life on one afternoon that changed her life, mm -hmm. featuring uh, Chrissy Salborn from Seattle. Right. Right, that was sung by Nancy Wilson. That's right. I know. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. She and and the way she does it. The way Nancy Wilson did it was fun. The way Nancy Wilson does it, she puts, you, she puts right, you right in the situation. Right there in the situation. And you had no clue until the very end. So what I add to that, to her version, is I add um, a saxophone solo. And the saxophone solo happens after she first steps into the restaurant. And what that does is uh, I feel like it sets up the mood for about 15 seconds of saxophone, 20 seconds of sax. You're kind of in this mood, right? Okay. Uh, it's an old Ray Charles technique where he would do that. He would, um, he would, he would be telling his story, and then before he got to the, um, the intense part of the story, there would be like a solo. Right. The, so the solo kind of gets your heart and your brain kind of following the threads of what he'd just been talking about. And then he hits you with the, the, the big thing. That's right. So. Wow, beautiful. So, 
That's on October 8th. That's the yeah. next big one. We're going to be doing that for sure. What are your aspirations for the future? Before I end, mm -hmm. I always like to ask aspirations for the future. Said, but what are your aspirations for the future? Every year now, on, on January 1st, I do my resolutions. I write them down because... How long have you been doing that? Just for about um, three or four years. Okay. Because I found out that something very magical happens when you don't just think about your dreams, but you write them down. So I've been doing that. And um, without looking... Because there's 20 items on there. So without... Um, Referring to that or cheat, uh, that cheat sheet, uh, I'll just say um, aspirations are to become one of the best saxophone players in the world so that I can be in the same talking smoking room with the greats and understand their spirituality. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the top ones. Jim, before I end the podcast, there's a question I'd like to ask. If you could go back in time, magically, and meet the younger Jim, hmm. knowing everything you know now, what advice would you give him and how old would he be? Relax. I'm talking to 20-year-old Jim. Just relax and follow, your, um, follow the train of your life and your, and your heart and your dreams. Don't worry so much. Don't doubt because it's all going to turn out great. Just make sure to keep listening to your spirituality. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Jim. I want to thank you so much. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all on loan. So continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed.